can I can I ask a meta, a meta question? Um, when you get a, uh, a request to do a podcast from like a white guy asking like I want to talk about like things happening in society, like what goes through your head? You're actually the first white guy to reach out to me. Most of the podcasts I'm on have all been um, black women or white women. Well, okay, I'm, I'll take that as an honor that I'm the first one to ask. But I, I assume that I mean I, I just assume that it's like a trope out there that every white guy has a podcast. Does this scare you? Huh? Fuck you know about being scared. Were you afraid someone was gonna come find you? Paul Bunyan ass cops come to chop me at the knees and search the trunk in my own town. Did you count his rings when you bled him? Huh? When you dead him? Do you understand? How old was he? He was 26. 26. So many years you decided it didn't mean shit. And all this talking don't mean shit. I've been in my element, eloquent, spitting hella, developing. I've been telling the shell I'm in not to walk like a felon and fucking flipping the middle finger to feel it irrelevant, reveling in my freedom till you turn heaven to hell. And hello, sir! I'ma need you to open your fucking eyes now and look and see. You might think you know what's happening, but you don't feel it like we do. To feel it, it has to be you. Cut you, but you don't know what the cut do. You are reflex, but when reflux bleeds the gut, then you see the faces. I'm the one out here stuck on a clock Loving a curfew to keep me off the block Fuck, what time is it? What time? What time? Nope, fuck it, I did my time How come every time you come around You monsters got me feeling like a monster in my own town? <laughs> the difference between me and you is I ain't no killer I'm John Totten And this is Between Us Hello How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. I was told by several people who don't know each other that I should I should try to interview you. Oh wow. <laughs> so you so you've done a good job of you getting your cause out there. Awesome. That's good to hear. In the last year, there have been two events that have rocked many of us to the core in regards to the racial realities many live in in this country. As we discussed with Dr. Tamala Nara, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police showed us the trauma that the black community must endure on a daily basis. But when we watched a mob of murderous seditionists storm the U.S. Capitol building, it was impossible not to watch as they trampled over our country's most important building without any consequence of violence, and think about the black bodies that would have been littered across our television had they not been white. That stark power differential is the stress that the black community carries with it each day. The inability to drive to work without fear of being pulled over. The inability to play music in a car. The inability to go on a jog. These stresses are not just psychological pains. Many of these Americans will worry harder and work harder than some of us can fathom, and many will die young from illnesses made worse by stress and anxiety. The secondary and transgenerational trauma is immeasurable. 
Our guest today works at the intersection of black bodies and black minds. Ashley McGirt is a speaker and educator who is a mental health therapist here in Seattle for people in hospice. She also started the Washington Therapy Fund, a nonprofit organization that provides mental health funds for free therapy to black people in Washington State. You can find it at wa-therapy-fund.com, wa-therapy-fund.com. She has a lot of wisdom to share about the racial trauma in her community and how it affects people both mentally and physically. And she spoke to me in the fall. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so my name is Ashley McGurk and I wear several hats. So I do hospice therapy full time where I provide emotional support, supportive socialization to those who are expected to die within six months or less. Not everyone on hospice will pass, but they have a terminal illness. So I provide support to them and their families at the end stage of their life. I also have a private practice where I specialize in racial trauma, trauma in general. And I do a lot of workshops and facilitation just around race, racial trauma, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I recently started what is in the final stage of becoming a nonprofit, the Washington Therapy Fund Foundation, which provides free therapy to Black people throughout the state of Washington. Yeah. And that was really in direct response to the George Floyd protest and a lot of the racialized trauma that had been exacerbated throughout the media. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in all of the things that you just mentioned, uh, starting in the beginning of it. I guess my first question in regards to that is what led you down the path of going into hospice care? So I have taken many paths throughout this world of mental health and healing and just serving others in terms of what really led me to hospice work. So really, I even got into this work because of the death of my grandmother at a very young age. And I had found that I was really grieving and my grief turned into major depression. I ended up seeing a school counselor and I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, Burien, which Burien is now more diverse than it was when I was growing up. But at the time that my grandmother had died, I ended up seeing a white counselor and she didn't really understand the role of grandmother in black families. And my therapy sessions really became an education for her, really teaching her what it was like being a black child in America. And I never really got the help that I needed Mm -hmm. when it came to processing the loss of my grandmother. So in a way to really heal myself and understand what I was going through, I started studying psychology. And so I started out wanting to work with children. So all throughout my degree, I was working on becoming a child psychologist. And one of my professors toward the end of my program, he was like, your grandmother has such a huge role in why you do this work. Have you ever thought about working with the elder population? And I was like, no, my focus has always been kids. And he had just breaking research, had this huge grant to really help the elder population. 
And so he wanted me involved because he had also noticed there was a lack of people of color who were really vested in doing the work to help the elder population. So just through learning from him, I started working with elders. I got a position as the director of social services for a skilled nursing facility. And I met with a lot of hospice therapists in doing my work at a skilled nursing facility because some of our patients in a skilled nursing went on hospice. Mm-hmm. And then I just became really passionate about that work. And one of my favorite books is Tuesdays with Mari. It's about a journalist who spends every Tuesday with this man who was dying from um, Lou Gehrig's disease. And I feel like what I do now is really Tuesdays with Maury, Monday through Friday. And it's incredible work. It's God's work. It's not for everybody. And it does have a lot of vicarious secondary trauma when you're sitting with those who are dying. But in working with the dying, it's also helped me to live a better life and help those who I see in my private practice and in my community live longer. Because in doing that work, not only hospice work, but when I was the director of social services at a nursing home, I seen that there was a huge amount of black and brown people who were at their end of life stage under 65, which is extremely young. And they were dying from chronic stress related illnesses that I really believe are preventable through mental health services, um, coping. And a lot of it is attributed to some systemic issues, but there's things that we can do inherently within ourselves to help prolong our lives. And a lot of my work is advocacy around prolonging life because ultimately we're all gonna die. Mm-hmm. But we should at least be living, you know, well past 30 years old. And the reality mm-hmm. is this month alone, I just had a 39-year-old Black man who died on hospice. And that's way too young. The reasons for worse health outcomes in the Black community are complex. Centuries of regressive economic treatment have left a disproportionate amount of Black folks living in poverty in a system that awards better medical care to people with more money. As the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the sick get sicker as well. Combine this with a history of abuse from the medical community, centuries of Black folks being involved in medical research and experimentation against their knowledge or will. The distrust that African Americans have for doctors is understandable. And the reasons for this distrust aren't only in the past. There are still racist attitudes and beliefs in some medical professionals. A study published in 2016 called Racial Bias in Pain Assessment and Treatment Recommendations showed that a significant portion of medical students and residents believed that black people inherently felt less pain than white people. That was five years ago. Many of those subjects are doctors now. These false beliefs indicate that doctors take the pain of black people less seriously. Take into account all these factors, the history of systemic racism and marginalization, the abusive relationship formed between the medical and black communities, along with ongoing racist attitudes and particular providers. And it's not surprising to learn that black people are at greater risk for high blood pressure at an early age, diabetes, stroke, cancer, heart disease, and yes, psychological distress.
when you're a kid and you're going to this counselor and it sounds like you're doing more work than she is, are you aware? It, it sounds like a role reversal. It sounds like almost like you're counseling her. Yeah. As a child, I don't think I was aware. I was just answering her questions. Adult Ashley totally would have advocated for herself and been like, whoa, whoa, mm-hmm. how can we flip this around so that I can actually get coping skills and tools to help me process through my grief versus Mm -hmm. educating you on Black life. But I didn't have the language. I didn't have the skills to actually communicate that to an adult who I was there to see her. I didn't know what counseling was supposed to look like. It was my first experience. I had a lot of emotions just around the loss of my grandmother, but ultimately I knew it wasn't helpful. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there has to be other children who are feeling the things that I was feeling and to come together in this setting that is supposed to be healing, to take your time, to educate someone on your culture. It just felt like a waste of time and a disservice Mm -hmm. to myself and, and to them who who was ultimately supposed to be helping me get to a point that I didn't get through through them. That's something that I see in my white clients, especially in these times, the squirming, the pressure to have people educate them. I guess I'm wondering for you as someone who's also, who is a person of color, but who's also taken on this mantle of educating people and, and speaking about these topics. How do you think about that pressure If I have the energy and the time and the capacity to educate you, I definitely will do it. I do talk to a lot of people in work settings and out in the community about how to handle this when their white peers are approaching them with answering questions about race. And I always say, you have to check yourself. Do you have the energy? What does this person mean to you? Um, How do you have to interact and show up with them? Because if it's in the workplace and if you work in IT, your role is IT. Your role is not to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have the skills or the education and the background and you want to offer that up and maybe be compensated for that time or change roles or change positions, I think that's important. Uh, Or to reach out to HR and say, hey, I'm seeing that these conversations are coming up and I'm being approached. So I think it would be important if you could bring someone in who is well-versed in these topics so that they can have a conversation with our colleagues about race, racism, what's going on in the world, so that I can relieve myself from these pressures as being Mm. the only person of color in the works space. So I help people with having conversations around that. If it's a family member or an aunt, is is it a conversation you want to have? These conversations are exhausting. They're emotionally taxing. So it takes a certain level of energy to engage and educate people, especially if people are not willing to receive the information or do their own work. Mm. And we all have the ability to research on our own, to educate ourselves. I advocate for people to be paid for their time and check their energy. Not everything needs to be said by us. I refer out, I uplift my community members. I know when things are too much for me. Mm -hmm. And there was a point when it became too much, especially in light of everything that was going on. I had to say no to a lot of people because I'm only one person. And I know that there are so many people in the community 
who have the resources and the intellect to have these conversations. And individually, Mm -hmm. we have to be willing to do our own work too. We have to actively be working to be anti-racist if we want to um, see a different society, a better society. My understanding from my own experience working with patients of color is that there is a stigma around mental health therapy in uh, marginalized communities. Therapy is definitely stigmatized in general overall, but especially within communities of color. I can speak directly about the Black community because it's the community of which I am a part of. And the Black community tends to uphold religion, Christianity. Not not every Black person is a Christian. We have Black people from all walks of faith, but we tend to value religion and faith within our community. So there is the mistaken belief that, you know, just pray it away. Just go to church. Just go to God. Sometimes it's spoken in our community that it's a weakness to talk to somebody else. We also have a legacy of post-traumatic slave syndrome where we weren't supposed to cry or share our emotions. And this goes back to when the slave master would literally beat us during slavery. If we cried, they would say, shut up or I will give you something else to cry about and we would be beat again. And then what happened? Slavery ended in 1865 and we were essentially were free people, but that was passed down in our families. There are some black families who will tell their children if they're crying or if they seem emotional, shut up before I give you something to cry about. And we need to change that culture within our families. And this, this isn't true for every black family. I personally can attest I've heard it in my family and I've worked to change that narrative when I've heard my parents say these things like you know we should be able to express our emotions and it's because we're holding on to that traumatic legacy from slavery there's certain behaviors and things that served us well back then that now are very harmful and we also have to look at the field of psychology itself It's inherently racist. It has roots in anthropology, which is racist. The founding fathers were extremely racist. They tried to prove how um, Black people and other people of color were inferior to whites in a lot of their research, a lot of things that were harmful that were done to Black people and other people of color. Many of our family members were around and remember things like the Tuskegee experiment. They remember the lobotomies that were done on Black bodies. Mm. They remember these harsh things that were done. So it, it's difficult for that community to then think, well, what has changed? How can I know that this is a safe space for me? Or how can I know that I can show up here and my children won't be taken from Mm. me? That I won't be incarcerated for sharing these things that may be cultural practices, but they're considered abnormal in your home. Studies show that a white male who walks into a psychiatric facility with the same exact symptoms as a black man who walks into a psychiatric facility will be diagnosed with bipolar, whereas the black man will be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And schizophrenia Mm -hmm. has more of a stigma associated to it, whereas bipolar is something that is considered more manageable. And these are two men, same exact symptoms. One is white, one is black. As people of color, as black people, we know this. I know this. One book that Ashley recommends is Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. This book chronicles America's dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. 
And in it, Washington discusses our national obsession with lobotomies in the mid-20th century. She writes, Between 1936 and 1960, an estimated 50,000 lobotomies severed neuronal connections between the frontal lobes and the midbrain of mental patients, both adults and children. Psychiatrists and neurosurgeons who practiced these blind-cut lobotomies simply inserted crude tools such as the ice picolon and blindly swept them back and forth within the brain, cutting all the connecting nerves, sight unseen, at one fell swoop. Nothing could be more violent than this clumsy and nightmarish destruction of brain tissue. These acts of unbelievable surgical hostility, which obliterated a child's very seat of thought, ability, and personality, nothing less than a murder of the mind, were forced upon black boys as young as five. Washington goes on to tell the story of one young black boy, J.M., who, at the hands of Dr. Orland Andy, was lobotomized several times, over and over, each one taking more brain tissue, until the boy was declared cured when there was barely any brain function left. At no point do Dr. Andy's records indicate parental or patient consent. I know that I am working within an inherently racist system, and I have to be creative. I have to find eclectic ways to serve my community because these evidence-based practices, our founding fathers, Freud, Adler, Piaget, they don't look like me. Mm -hmm. They don't look like my community. Mm -hmm. The people who look like me are not talked about. We don't talk about Dr. Joy DeGruy. We don't talk about Kenneth and Mammy Clark. We don't talk about Dr. Beverly Tatum. Hmm. You remind, one of the things that you said about the possibility of someone's kids being taken away reminded me of my first paid counseling experience, but I was working in the probation system. I mean, talk about an inherent problem in itself, right? Like forced therapy, right? You know, what I was wanting was this very two-way relationship, and suddenly I had the power to send someone back to jail. Yeah. A very obvious reason for someone not to necessarily trust the therapeutic process. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the stressors in communities of color are not going away. So typically when we treat trauma, it's under the premise that it's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. But for BIPOC communities, it's likely to happen as soon as they leave the therapy office the next day, the same week, because racism is really so pervasive and it's not going to end tomorrow unless some miracle or act of God or whatever changes the heart and minds of races and undoes the oppressive systems that really uphold those racist ideologies. So mm -hmm. it has a, a negative connotation because it's like, well, my problem is this. The problem cannot be fixed. So in my work, I really help people to cope and find ways to care for self and to find joy because joy and happiness is internal. So I'm doing a lot of like affirming a lot of body work and really healing the body mm. since we hold so much trauma in our bodies. But that is a huge part of the stigma, really, because it's like, why go to therapy? There's still going to be racism, still going to be Black people killed by the police or killed by other Black people or just the whole whole thing, which sometimes makes people reluctant to going because they don't see how it can actually help them. How does therapy address oppression? 
So it depends on which modality you're looking at. And most of them are not designed to address it. So that's when the therapist themselves has to become creative in actually finding ways to connect and really treat the client themselves. There is the ethno-violence model to really addressing racialized trauma and understanding it and helping clients cope from it. Mm-hmm. I like to incorporate a lot of somatic work. So healing the body, looking at where do you feel it? So when you walked in Walmart and you were followed around, what was the feeling associated with it? And where was it in your body? Oh, my chest automatically felt it in my chest or my shoulders started to get tight. My head started to hurt. So I look at those practices. How can I look at a CBT model and incorporate that or a DBT model, which is cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy and taking that mindfulness approach, grounding techniques to really center my clients back to earth, back to self. And the reality is Indigenous people, people of color, have been healing since before Freud stepped on this earth. Our people have always found ways to heal, whether it's Reiki, whether it's acupuncture, whether it's dance or movement. So it's incorporating a variety of things. Right now, I'm doing an Afro-centered healing approach. So looking at, at those principles, which people in Africa actually utilize to help heal themselves before the word therapy was even a word. So going back to those indigenous practices and really incorporating them and then looking at the westernized practices like, okay, I see this CBT model. How could this help someone who just experienced this act or who was just let go or is in you know poverty, low income family, exposed to COVID, living in a multi-generational household, struggling with the fact that they are an essential worker and in order to keep their lights on, they have to leave, but still come home and serve knowing that they have people in their household who are high risk, have high comorbidities, because this is a very real thing that many families and especially families of color are facing right now in this season. Mm -hmm. So those are the ways that I look at treating racialized trauma, treating oppression and grief. You know, when we look at grief, we go to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler, which I admire their work. They are great people looking at the different stages of grief. But how do those stages look differently based on one's culture, based on Mm -hmm. one's ethnicity? Even going back to my own upbringing when I was dealing with the loss of my grandmother and my white counselor just seen it as, well, she was old. It's the normal cycle of life when the reality is my grandmother was 62 years old. That was way too young. And she died from a stroke which was attributed from high blood pressure, which was attributed from stress. She was one of the only Black teachers in the school that she taught at. And the majority of her class was white. She taught white students. And she experienced so much racism, so much resistance to learn from her. I'm not going to be educated by you as Black woman. Like, who are you? These are the things that she faced. And she held that stress in her body. Would her life have turned out differently if she went to therapy? I don't know. She didn't get that opportunity to even try it out. The health outcome disparity has been in our faces over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. As Ashley mentions, Black people are far more likely to work in essential jobs and are therefore more at risk. The CDC reports that the Black community suffers 1.4 times the cases, 
3.7 times the hospitalizations and 2.8 times the amount of deaths than the white community. Notice how the disparity of outcome grows in the serious cases. The history of systemic racism that has created mass comorbidity as well as the lesser quality treatment received by the black community has made this deadly virus even deadlier. How has the pandemic affected being a hospice therapist? It's just changed the way that I connect to my patients because I'm seeing the majority of them via Zoom, the way we're connecting right now doing this podcast. It's not as personal. I cannot feel the warmth of their body. They cannot feel my energy through a computer screen. And oftentimes their caregiver is holding the iPad or the laptop or helping assist them. And then there's another person in the room. So they may not be able to feel like they can speak as freely as they could if I were to show up in their home like I used to in the past. Many of my patients are in adult family homes or skilled nursing facilities, and they aren't allowing visitors. Their family members have to see them through a glass window. So the way that they have to connect during the last stage of their life has dramatically changed because of the pandemic. The way that they are celebrated at the end of their life when it comes to having a funeral home has changed because you know, you're not allowed to have gatherings and things of that nature. But at one point it was like five to 10 people that could really just show up or have to have to zoom in to a funeral. How does that change? the level that we connect and that experience that people are having when they really want to be surrounded around family during the last moments of their life, but they may not be able to, especially if their family members have a high-risk job. And this is true for people of color who we know are overwhelmingly represented as essential workers. Black and brown people are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. So COVID has really shown a lot of the ills of American society. I mean, we just recognized racism as public health crisis in June. But these are things that we have ultimately known forever. King County here in Washington just recently recognized that racism is a public health crisis Mm. and they put out a whole model of how they're going to address it and work to eliminate racism because it is impacting our public health from mortality rates to education and incarceration. Everything can be attributed to it. And, you know, there's never been any truth and reconciliation from the nation when it comes to slavery. You know, we have to deal with the truth. We've seen cases like George Floyd in the news all the time, it seems like. But obviously, we're in a, a, a different year. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So the change that I would see that really caused people to really pay attention to what's going on is the fact that so many of us are home. We're working from home. We're able to tune into the news, tune into social media. We're on a pause. Gyms were closed, movie theaters, all of the places that we went to to gather were not available. So what did we have? We had our televisions, our cell phones that connected us to social media. We were gathered at at home with our family members to really have these conversations. And in the media, shed light on this, it you know, caused the conversation to increase. But this isn't new. Police brutality, it's not a foreign concept to most people of color. Eric Garner couldn't breathe. 
But there was no outrage when Eric Garner was choked to death like there was for George Floyd when he had a knee to his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds because the world was not on a pause back then. Mm -hmm. We all seen what happened to Trayvon Martin. Charlene allows here locally in Washington state, which also made national news, Tamir Rice, the list goes on and on, even going back to Emmett Till and beyond, Abner Loima, like all of these people. But I would say it really was just the fact that we were all at home. You know, we had no choice but to tune in, to sit down with our families, to see what was going on. And the media really did a good job of having it front and center. Sometimes these stories are not front and center, but you know, it was everywhere. And it was on top of being unemployed, on top of us grieving so many losses. And I think it just allowed us to really look at what is actually going on in America what is actually happening to Black people. Because most Black people already knew these things. Tell me about the genesis of the Washington Therapy Fund. Yeah, so I was just getting a lot of people reaching out to me. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have EAP, an employee assistance program. They didn't have finances to pay for me. And one, I wish I could serve everybody for free. If there was a way for me to still still sustain the life that I live, pay my mortgage, pay my bills, I would totally work for free. But the reality is it cost a lot of money to become a therapist, mm-hmm. especially the schools that I went to, pretty expensive institutions. So I have a lot of student loan debt, a lot of business costs. And at the end of the day, it's a business. And again, if I could, I would. So this was my way to show up for people and not have to have them pay. And also, I knew there were other therapists just like me who were offering free services, offering sliding scale rates, providing therapy for $30 to $60, even less. That's a quick way to get burnout. That's a quick way to go into debt. That's a quick way to not be able to sustain your life and and pay your bills. I wanted therapists to be able to get a good rate and still serve the clients and still be able to, you know, pay their bills and have their services mm-hmm. met. And I'm only one person. I cannot see everybody in the state of Washington. So I have connected with a lot of therapists, majority Black, because I want to really expand and shed a spotlight on Black therapists because there are so few of us. But I do have a lot of white therapists and other non-Black therapists who have partnered with the Washington Therapy Fund and are doing their own work to be anti-racist, engaging in trainings to really be skilled to treat these clients. And the clients don't have to pay and they get paid. So mm-hmm. it works out. It's a it's a win-win. And so if there is a, a person out there who's listening to this and let's say they're a Black person in Washington and they need mental health can they go to your website and can that be the first step in terms of finding a ther- like f- both finding a therapist and also uh, having some financial assistance? Yep, 
They just apply. They want to find a therapist first. If they're already working with someone and they're struggling to pay for their sessions, Mm -hmm. they can have their therapist reach out to us and apply to actually be one of our providers. So it's really quick, seamless process. Just, you know, have your therapist apply with us, you apply, and then we provide the funds. And if you're not in the state of Washington, there are some other organizations who are doing this on a national level. The Loveland Foundation, Frederick P. Henson's Forest L. Henson Foundation, they're Mm -hmm. providing free therapy. And right now they're doing a push for Black men to go to therapy. So they have a huge campaign. Their foundations and their campaigns actually help to inspire my work. And they're providing therapy on a national level. So I wanted to uh, focus specifically on the place that I was born, the place that I live, the place that I call home which is Washington state. And I inspired a lot of people in my therapist community. My therapist friends have started their own funds in like Georgia, Michigan, my friends starting one in Oregon. So the help is popping up, but there's still a need until everyone can get the help that they need at no cost. And the Mm -hmm. providers are paid because that's important. I mean, you've taken a very proactive approach to the the, the trauma that your community has experienced, the trauma that we see on the news, uh, especially in 2020. One thing that I hear all the time from white therapists is like, what can I do? What can I do as a white therapist? Do their own work, have these conversations with their family, expose their children, expose themselves to diverse populations. Too often, we stay confined within our own collective community and we never get out. Mm. And I know you're local to Seattle. There's people in Seattle who won't even go to Tacoma, which what that's <laughs> 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So we are so stuck within our communities that we don't get out. Expose yourself to diverse literature, watch diverse films, read diverse books. Dr. Joy DeGruy, Dr. Beverly Tatum, look up people outside of Freud, outside of Adler and Piaget. We need to know clinicians of color. Look at their research. Look at the Journal of Pan-African Studies. What does their work say? Really understand the history. Look at drapetomania, which is a diagnosis which essentially labeled slaves a certain way for wanting to escape when they should in fact want to be free. I never heard of it before. (laughs) Yeah, we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about it in grad school. I looked it up and was astounded, even though I probably shouldn't have been surprised. Drapetomania was a conjectural mental illness dreamed up by American physician Samuel Cartwright in the 1850s that described the desire of slaves to flee. It was contemporarily criticized, sure, but received far more attention than it deserved and was accepted among physicians in the South. Cartwright described this pseudoscientific disorder as being caused by slave masters who were too kind to their slaves. The diagnosis lingered as late as 1914 when it was printed in the Practical Medical Dictionary. This would be consistent with the history in our own field of problematic diagnoses many of which still exist in the DSM. Most notably, homosexuality was only removed from the DSM in 1973, allowing decades of malpractice for queer people at the hands of medical and mental health practitioners. Obviously, these malpractices have not stopped entirely today. So it's constantly evolving, but understanding that history and and learning that work 
a previous guest mentioned this, that we don't have a DSM category for racial trauma yet either, though. Yeah, and I'm torn on that. I honestly don't think, I personally don't think we should. If it's in there, it should be like grief. Grief is not a mental illness. It's something that's normal. You cannot diagnose someone with grief. Whereas I don't believe we should be diagnosing people with racial trauma because that'll put a label and a stigma on them. And there's been so much Mm -hmm. harm when it comes to having a mental illness. You know, you're not able to Mm -hmm. adopt a child. You're prevented from having certain jobs when you have this label associated with you. And the reality is, Racial trauma is a normal response to a racist act, just like grief is a normal response to the loss of something. I know there's been talks about putting it in there, and I just see how it could be so much harmful. If it's in there, it has to be just like grief. It's not a diagnosis. So that's exactly why I'm always going to advocate against putting it in. If there's a DSM-6, eventually there will be that comes out. I don't think it should be there. Just like people talk about, should racism be labeled a mental illness? What does that look like? What is racism? We don't always define racism as it should be. You know, Merriam-Webster recently just came out and said they're going to be updating their definition of racism because they have seen how so many people have used it in harmful ways. But racism Mm -hmm. is really a system of oppression and power. So oftentimes we confuse it with like bigotry or prejudice, but me calling you a derogatory term or making fun of you or doing any of these things, it definitely has power. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, but it has a different type of power, unlike racism, where it can literally impact the school you get into, the education that you have, being incarcerated. So we have to, one, really understand what racism is and the power that it has. You talk about burnout and self-care. What keeps you going? What keeps you driven? Um, So definitely my grandmother, um, Mm -hmm. my faith in God. I feel like the work that I do is God's work. And Mm -hmm. so I have to show up every single day to really help my community because I know there's someone in a dark corner with a bottle of pills writing a note, literally about to end their life right now because they have no hope. And my aim is to reach those people who are in those dark corners who feel like they have nobody. That drives me. That motivates me because I know what it's like to sit in that dark corner and feel hopeless and feel like you just can't call on anyone. So I want to show up. And that's why I'm very visible in my community. And I make sure people see me and they see a Black woman, a millennial therapist, who understands the culture I ascribe to the Black culture, the millennial urban culture. So people see that and they see themselves reflected in me. That motivates me. And, um, you know, just my family, because when I look at my family and I see the ways in which they've died, it's horrific. You know, I, I shared that my grandmother was 62, but in the past two years, I lost my aunt at 52 mm. and my uncle at 51, my cousin at 33, all from chronic stress-related illnesses. The reality is they were poor and Black. They had Medicaid. They were mistreated. 
by the system in so many ways. My mother's a registered nurse. And I remember when my uncle was sick and dying and there were things that they were not going to do to prolong his life. And so my mother showed up at that hospital and because she's a registered nurse, she has the education and the language to know, hey, you can actually do this. But had my mother not have shown up, all they seen was a poor black man. They didn't see someone who served this country and who suffered from PTSD, which is why he was in the predicament that he he was in and who was not really cared for by the country in which he served. It's really my family, my community, all of these things that drive me and motivate me every day because it can't keep happening. I don't want to keep seeing my uncles, my aunties, my grandparents dying from these things that are really preventable. And I have to be the voice of my people. I'm one voice, but I show up My grandmother taught me that really, you know, service is the rent we pay to live on this earth. So I feel like I'm I'm of service to others. I'm of service to my community. And it it brings me joy. It, you know, it keeps me passionate. I'm always up at night thinking, like, what is another way? What's something? My mind doesn't stop. My fiance would tell you, like, I just keep going. Like, what else can I do to help my people during this time that I have on this earth? Because tomorrow's not promised. And especially now, the way that this world is going, and we don't know what it's going to look like come November 4th, but I'm going to do everything that I can each day to really show up and do this work and make sure I'm well, because the reality is if I'm not well, I'm not here to serve my community. Talking about your family and your community, you you care, seem to carry for them a great deal of psychological pain. What do you do for yourself? Yeah, so my self-care routine looks like walks. I just purchased a treadmill. Um, (laughs) So I've been doing that because when the air, you know, as soon as I walked outside to check my mail, that that poor air quality that we had, I was choking. So I immediately ordered a a treadmill. So I go on walks. Um, I love to travel. So it's been really hard during this season of COVID and not being able to travel. Used to do a lot of hikes. Washington is such a beautiful place. I have a really good support system. My fiance understands the work that I do. My mother's a registered nurse. So I have a lot of family in healthcare in general or just in human services who understand the hard, difficult work that we do. So we have a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. Prior to COVID, I used to go to comedy shows, um, spending time with my fiance, planning, planning a wedding. You know, the fact that we can still find Black love, love in general during this mm-hmm. difficult time helps helps keep me calm and just doing things that that make me happy, nourish my mind, my body, and my spirit. That, that's my self-care. We're in a time in the country where we're all just biting our nails, but is there something that gives you hope? I am hopeful to see some truth and reconciliation within this country to really help right the wrongs from the tragedies that have occurred on Black bodies, whether that looks Mm -hmm. like reparations, whether that looks like eliminating school debt, whatever that is, I'm hopeful and I'm excited to see what things look like. I'm a planner, so I'm always planning and COVID has taken away so much for me. So I'm just taking things day by day, even with the wedding planning. I'm just like, you know, we'll we'll do whatever we can. We'll continue to keep an update. I'm not going to stress myself out about it. I'm not going to allow something that's supposed to be fun kill me earlier than I should go. 
being hopeful about today and just focusing on today. Like what is going on today in my life? I got to show up and record a podcast with you. So that was pretty awesome. And I did acupuncture right before I I came to you. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. To support the work that Ashley McGirt is doing for the black community here in Washington, visit her nonprofit at wawtherapyfund.com. That's wa-therapyfund.com. The work she is doing is important and transformative. Our thanks to her for joining us and sharing with us her work and her story. This has been Between Us. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composes our music. We have a new research assistant. Her name is Rose Bergdahl. Rose joined us partway through the production of this season, so you'll hear her name pop up on some of the episodes. But she's been helping us keep the entire season orderly and well-informed. If you like the show, find us on your podcast outlets. Leave us a review and subscribe. Mason and I have been posting conversations to our new YouTube account. Those conversations, which we're calling Free Associations, pop up every month or so. Find us on YouTube. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Find us there and say hi. And until next time, take care.